0: And we've been uh, working through uh, Matthew chapter 23, and we're on verses uh, 23, 24. We're only going to do two little verses today. (laughs) Usually we cover more. Uh, But as we've been going through chapter 23, we've been talking about Pharisees and hypocrites. This is uh, what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He is confronting the Pharisees and the religious leaders uh, about their hypocrisy, Uh, about the fact that they're not bringing people to God, but pushing people away from God, and it's a pretty heavy chapter. And you remember that we've talked uh, numerous times just about the Pharisees, that the Pharisees were, uh, in in many ways, the heroes in terms of those people who were really living for God. Uh, The Pharisees looked at themselves as those who were closest to God, that they had it most together, that they were the ones really living for God. And if you wanted to live for God, then you needed to live like them. But what's interesting about this whole passage is, of course, Jesus is standing right in front of these guys, and he, of course, being fully God, fully human, who came into this world He is standing in front of the Pharisees, the very presence of God, and the Pharisees who thought they were closest to God want to kill him. I mean, that's how deceived these Pharisees were that here they thought they were doing everything right and God is in their midst and they want to get rid of Jesus. They want to kill Jesus. they tried to trap Jesus. I mean, this is just a simple definition of being incredibly deceived. And we've talked about how we as well can begin going down the route of a Pharisee. That is, when we meet Jesus, we're excited and we begin to grow in our faith. And we begin to read and study and begin to to serve and we get really excited and we make it about God. But there's a subtle temptation after a while to begin to notice those who lag behind to begin noticing those who aren't serving as much as you and aren't worshiping as passionately as you and aren't reading the Bible the way you are. And all of a sudden, your attention can go from God towards others where you end up like a Pharisee who is all about show, all about impressing other people. It has become entirely about pride rather than about God. And so we need to continually, as Hebrews 12 says, to keep our eyes fixed on God. Jesus, and that will help us uh, stay away from the trap of the the Pharisees and the religious leaders it's interesting that in uh, the Talmud there's a collection of ancient Jewish writings there's actually a description of of seven different kinds of Pharisees and uh, and there was first the shouldering Pharisee shouldering means that he does everything for show that he would live for the praises of men and we see Jesus talking about that like in the Sermon on the Mount or people who are praying in public and giving in public and very public because his life doesn't come from God but from the praise of men. There's the delaying Pharisee who always delayed his good deeds, who loved the prestige of being a Pharisee because they were the heroes again. Everybody looked up to the Pharisees. They loved that. They loved, as Jesus has said in this passage, being called rabbi and teacher and master. They loved that, but when it actually comes to living out their faith, they would always delay their good deeds because their heart wasn't really motivated by God. There was the bruised Pharisee, was the Pharisee who was known for walking into walls and buildings because uh, they had this idea that women were unclean and, and, and Gentiles were unclean. and So if they saw a woman or a Gentile, they'd put their head down and they'd run into things. They'd be bruised and they'd be bleeding. It was a, the bruise. You can just see how religiously off these guys were. There's a pestle Pharisee. That's a, you know, those stones that you ground up, herbs, the heavy end down, who, would, who were known for false humility, who would always walk around with their head down saying, woe is me, you know, I suck, and I'm no good, and you know, God is so amazing. It was just, just another way of revealing their pride. Uh, trying to impress people with their false humility. There is the ever-reckoning Pharisee who was the scorekeeper, who was always almost like Islam, trying to outweigh the good from the bad to make sure their good was more than, than their bad or making sure that their good deeds were better than others. Instead of measuring themselves with God, they're always, well, at least I'm better than that guy. The scorekeeper. And then there's the fearful Pharisee who lives in terror of God who doesn't do things out of a motivation of love for God and people. It's all because I'm scared of God and he's going to get me and give me a big spanking if I don't do something right. And then in the Talmud says there was the loving Pharisee and they would say this was the only true Pharisee who was motivated by a love for God that was passionate for God. And of course, Jesus, his main criticism is on the first six of these kinds of Pharisees. Now it's interesting, you can look at this list and you can say, you know what, we have those seven kinds of people who call themselves Christians too. We have the shouldering Christian who is very much about trying to please people and impress people and, you know, impressing God is sort of the sidelines, but man, if I can do something to show off, if I can read loud or pray loud or do something amazing so people see how wonderful of a Christian I am, we have those guys and gals, right? And we are tempted sometimes to be a shouldering Christian. Or there's the delaying Christian who, you know, might be on fire when they're in church, but when it comes to the weak, they're not living for Jesus. They're not helping the poor and serving people and loving people and living for Jesus. They just kind of delay their good deeds unless it can be maybe seen by somebody. It's a temptation for all of us to be a delaying Christian. Or we got the bruised Christian who is, who is so scared of the world, right, They don't want to talk to their neighbors because, you know, they they don't know Jesus, and they live in this little Christian box and are totally off mission. In a sense, they're running into walls because they have walls everywhere in their life. And then there's the the pestle Christian who, you know, has false humility, who tries to, to lift up their own pride by pretending to be incredibly humble. And then there's the scorekeeping Christian. God, I did a lot of good stuff this week. Certainly I deserved to have a little indulgence, like going back to the middle ages of Christianity where where you bought indulgences so you can indulge in some sin. And then there's the the fearful Christian. He doesn't really know what it's like to to go boldly, as Hebrews says, into the throne room of grace and ask for mercy in our time of need. They don't know about that because they're just scared of God. They don't know about the Father's love in their life. And then you have the loving Christian and this is what Jesus is calling us to be a Christian who is about loving Jesus and about loving people. And so it's just kind of interesting that Talmud talks about these seven kinds. So let's jump into our verse. Jesus says, "Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites." And remember he he uses that word hypocrites seven times in this text to describe the Pharisees who as he said did not practice what they preached, and he says, "You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law: justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel." And you might have heard that phrase in our society, and it's used. One of those it comes from Matthew chapter twenty-three. All right, so let's break this down. He begins by talking about the Pharisees giving a tenth of their spices. And the tenth just means a tithe or 10%. They would tithe out of their spice rack. Okay, so when it came to all their little mint and dill and cumin, they'd make sure that God got exactly 10% because they're pretty serious about the rules and following the 613 commandments out of the Old Testament. And indeed, uh, the command to tithe, to give 10%, is found in the Old Testament, Leviticus 27, commands the people that a tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod, will be holy to the Lord. And so under the old covenant, the people had to give 10% of all their income. And in those days, it was their garden and their flocks to the temple, to the work of the temple to support the priests. And so the Pharisees, being super uber serious about this, would make sure that you know every 10th mint leaf would go to God and every 10th little spice and little seed to make sure that they were you know, really carrying out the law. And again, the reason for the tithe was, Numbers 18, it says, I give to the Levites, who were the the priests of the day, all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. So they didn't have time to be in the fields or planting a garden because they were serving in the temple. And so that's where their income came from. Uh, Paul mentions this idea in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings brought to the temple. And those who serve at the altar get a share of the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. And so, of course, the church similarly follows in that line uh, today. Now, one of the questions that comes out of this is the question of, should we, we still do this today? The Pharisees were being super serious about, you know, every little tenth seed and mint goes to God. Should we still do that today? I mean, when we harvest our gardens, I mean, should every tenth carrot be brought to the church? And, you know, every tenth tomato? And if you have chickens, every tenth egg? Or, you know, to make sure that God gets a tenth of everything we have. I mean, should we still do this today? Right? Bringing this into the modern context. Some people will say, yes, that... uh, that, that God should get exactly 10% of everything that, that we bring in. And they often point to this very text, because Jesus says here to the Pharisees, without neglecting the former, talking about the tithe. So, you tithe a tenth of your mint deal cumin, and he says, don't neglect that. And so, some people say that we should still give exactly 10% to God today. Now, uh, Most scholars, most Christians aren't at like, you got to give exactly, exactly 10%. They would point out that this text here is still under the old covenant. The new covenant was not inaugurated until Jesus' death and resurrection. And so these Pharisees still living under the old covenant, Jesus says, yes, you should still tithe as it was found in the law. Uh, Sometimes people will point out that the tithe was even before the law, as Abraham gave a a tenth to Melchizedek. Uh, But most people understand that uh, giving in the New Testament is not based on exact percentage, but it is more a motivation of the heart, as found here. Uh, Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we're to give cheerfully. Also, it doesn't say you have to give an exact percent. It says what you've decided in your heart. And then he says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And nowhere under the new covenant, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, do we see anything about giving an exact percentage, as in 10%. But we do find, is that the principle of giving in the New Testament is a principle of sacrificial giving. That we don't just give what is comfortable, because for some people 10% is comfortable, but we give what is sacrificial. I think C.S. Lewis has the best summary of sort of the New Testament teaching on this, We I don't have time to get into it all. But he says this. He says, I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. In other words, if you look at someone else who has the same income as you outside the kingdom and you do exactly the same things, live exactly the same way as you do, you're probably not giving sacrificially. If our charities or our giving habits do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our giving expenditures exclude them. I mean, when you think about the work of the kingdom and, and people coming to know Jesus and ministries, I mean, that all takes, takes money and, and we need to be thinking of laying up our treasure in heaven, as Jesus said, not just collecting things where moth and rust destroy. And so the challenge of this text is not, you know, tithing out of our garden every tenth carat. The challenge is, are we giving sacrificially? And for most people with the incomes, it's going to be right around 10%. And that's often what we we challenge people is to try to to take the 10% challenge. I mean, for some people, sacrificial giving might be a lot more than 10%. For some who are on very low income, uh, I mean, they might give less. But what is sacrificial for you? And perhaps you want to engage in the 10% uh, challenge. Uh, One more quote from Randy Alcorn, who had this. He's talking about, The fact the old covenant, as Paul describes it, is kind of dim and passing away compared to the brightness of the new covenant. Now Jesus takes a lot of the Old Testament commands and he raises the bar. Like you've heard that it says, do not murder, but I say to you, even if you're angry at someone, that's murder. He's raising the bar and he talks about raising the standard in our lives of giving and sacrificial giving to the poor and to the needy and, and to ministry. He says, to me, giving less than a tithe is simply not an option. Someday I'm going to stand before God and give an account of my life. On that day, I do not want to have to explain why, being indwelt with the Holy Spirit and having lived in the most affluent nation in human history, I failed to give at the very minimal level of those who did not have the indwelling of the Spirit and owned far less than I. Talking about those who had to give 10% in the Old Testament. And so, man, it's a challenge For us to to give sacrificially, to think kingdom minded in a world where there's so much pressure to buy and to live and to have excitement and and to live like everyone around us that we need to live differently in this area. I mean we're we're in the top one percent of wealth in this world there's people hungry and starving. And there's mission to do. And, and that's just something that God's got to continually work in us. And we've got to continually remind ourselves about. That man, if these guys in the Old Testament, Pharisees, were willing to tithe their mint, dill, and cumin. I mean, we, we need people who are just willing to give. Alright, then he goes on. So you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. Then he says, but you have neglected the more important Matters of the law justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. In other words, both are good, but one is more important. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness more important than tithing out of your spice rack. And then he says, You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. And of course, uh the idea of this is that both of these animals in the Old Testament were unclean creatures. That there were certain uh, insects that they couldn't eat. There's some they could, but there's some they couldn't. One being the gnat, it was one of the smallest insects that if you ate one, you'd become unclean. And so, before the Pharisees would drink their wine, they would make sure they pour it through a filter to make sure to get all the bugs and gnats out of it so they could remain clean. But Jesus says, while you're doing that, you're swallowing the biggest animal in that area, which was unclean, which was the camel. Right? It's unclean for them to eat, just like it's kind of weird for us to eat dog, right? No, you just don't do that. A camel was unclean, right? They're so focused on all these little details that Jesus says, you're, 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 you're blowing it. Your head is in the sand. You are swallowing a camel. You are taking in that which is so unclean while you're focused on these little minor details of uncleanliness swallowing a camel, right, while straining out the gnat. This is, this, this is majoring in the minors, the same idea. You majored, you spent all your time focused on those things that are of little importance. Still important, but little importance. So he says here that there are more important matters of the law. And this is important to understand that not all commands in the Bible are equal. That there are some commands that God gives us that are more important than others. Now, some pe- people, when I say something like that, will say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. All God's commands are exactly equal because of James chapter two, and I'll read that. It says, uh, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So therefore, all of them are equal because if you mess up on a little one, it's just like you've blown them all, so they're all equal. Well, it's not talking here about the value or importance of each command. It's talking here about are standing before God. That we realize that the kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, it's a perfect place. Right? If it wasn't perfect, it wouldn't be heaven, right? But we're not perfect. We're sinners. And it doesn't matter if you blow it 10 billion times in life or you blow it once, you're still not perfect. It doesn't matter how good of a person you think you are. The point of this text is that we are all sinners and whether you mess up once or a hundred times we still need a savior everyone needs a savior and this is good news because it doesn't matter how rotten of a person you are or how dark your life has been or how wonderful your life has been jesus invites you to himself and he's a savior for all that come to him but clearly in the bible there are some commands that are more important than others i mean jesus said What is the greatest command, he was asked, and he said, to love the God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love people. The greatest command. Hosea, for instance, says this, for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Now sacrifice was commanded, burnt offerings were commanded. Those were laws, those were commands. But he says, there's something more important than that. It's called love. It's called mercy. It's called acknowledgement of God. More important than burnt offerings and sacrifices, though all of those things were commanded. I mean, you can spend all your time focused on lesser commands and blow the big commands. But I tell you, when you focus on the big commands and you miss out on some of the small commands, that's a lot better because Jesus said, love covers a multitude of sins, not the other way around, right? Right? Or we could look at uh, 1 Corinthians thirteen. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, Paul says, I wish that all of you spoke in tongues, right? But I don't have love. I'm only a resounding gong or clinging symbol. Love is more important than speaking in tongues. I am only a resounding gong or clinging symbol. If I have the gift of prophecy, which is a great thing, Paul says, desire the gift of prophecy. And can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, that's impressive to have big faith. I mean, Jesus is always saying, where is your faith? I mean, he wants us to have great faith. But, if you do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if you tithe every week, you give 100% of your money away. But you don't have love. You have nothing. Or I give my body to hardship. I suffer for the kingdom. I'm going to be a martyr, right? That's... That's pretty big, that I may boast, but if I do not have love, I gain nothing. Or I, for verse 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, that the idea of, again, the great command to love God and love people, those trump everything else. They're more important than the other commands. Or Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And in context, he's talking about these Pharisee-type people who were demanding that people be circumcised in order to be saved. And they were going from church to church preaching this and teaching this and telling people you have to be circumcised to be saved. But Paul says, where's your love? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And so there are more important commands. The command for us to love God and love people is vastly important. And we can end up in a place where we just begin to focus on these minor little things and we miss out on what God is really wanting us to see in our lives. Another example of this might be the Good Samaritan story. Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. I mean, maybe he had like a prayer meeting to go to, or he got to get to the temple because he had to go do his duties. He passes by. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And Jesus, the point of the story was that this was the person who was really loving. Who really cared for his neighbor. I, I'm sure the Levite and priest had some important things to do. But sometimes there's more important things in our situations. And and every day we're faced with this. We, We are bombarded in our society with all kinds of demands and requests. And we have all these priorities. And sometimes we need to sit back and just say, what is most important? Because you can quickly end up like a Pharisee, you know, spending all day just counting out your little seeds to make sure you have the 10%. And yet you're missing out on what God is really wanting to see in your life or, or my life. And so, I mean, there are things that we can fall on. I mean, maybe some simple examples. Let's say, like, the Bible says we were to obey the government, okay? So let's say uh, a Christian wants to get really serious about that and says, well, I gotta obey the speed limit everywhere. And so they start driving the speed limit everywhere. I mean, let's say they're driving out to, like, out the lake, Coconut Creek Park, and, and they're driving 60, and they got a zillion cars behind them because nobody drives the speed limit out there, right? But they're obeying the command because I'm going to obey the government. But then they see all these cars behind them, and they get ticked. Look at all these people driving so fast. And they get angry, and they start, like, cursing. And I mean, you just swallowed a camel, okay? I mean, spewing angerness and bitterness, and, and it might be the other way around. Maybe you're in the car, it's like, the guy driving so slow, right? I mean, we could swallow camels. Or, I mean, you, you can be in love with theology, like I am. I love theology, but, you know... I can spend all day, every day, just in my with my face and books, just studying theology and learning and and, and and never hang out with my neighbor, never learn people's name, never actually get out and be in relationship with people. I mean that would be theology's great, but you miss out on some of the larger mission? You've just swallowed a camel, okay? Or you can spend all your time just tinkering around with hobbies and, and tinkering around in front of the TV. You know the latest statistics? just read this this week. The average adult now spends eight and a half hours a day in front of a screen. Be that computer, TV, smartphone. Eight and a half hours a day in front of a screen. That's the average. I mean, that's crazy. And I mean, sometimes we've got to do that for work, but sometimes we've got to stop. It's like, is this really the most important thing I should be doing right now? I mean, I don't think we want to step into heaven and go, Just be blown away by the incredibleness of this and say, you know, just like, man, I should have been living more for this than the stuff here. Nothing wrong with hobbies, nothing wrong with watching TV or having a smart, nothing wrong with those things, but sometimes we just need to work more on basing our life on the important commands rather than majoring on the minor commands. Now, all commands from God are important, but if you are going to do well at something. Do well at loving God and loving people. You must do well at those things. And I think the reason why we end up minoring, uh, majoring in the minors, as I was thinking about this, at least in my own life, because there's areas in my life where I kind of like to major in the minors. And, and I think the reason is, is because it's easier. It's just, it's just easier to focus on these little things. You know, for a Pharisee, I'm sure it was easier to spend the day counting out seeds rather than going out there and trying to win tax collectors and sinners. That's hard. And it's the same for us. It's hard to go out and meet people sometimes outside the church and, to, and to, to be serious about, you know, going into all the world and bringing in the teachings of Jesus. I mean, that, that's hard. That, that challenges us. So we'll just say, well, I'll just be really busy with all these little commands so I don't have to think about that. I mean, I, I do that sometimes. Whole churches can fall into that trap. Or you know it's hard to be a missional church. It's hard to be a church that's really preaching Jesus and being a light in your community. That's really hard. So let's just focus on a whole bunch of little internal things. We'll just have lots of little internal things so we don't have to think about that. And you end up majoring in the minors. It is easier to do the little things and it's more comfortable to do those things. But that doesn't mean it's necessarily what we should be focusing on. What is most important it's a question we've got to continually ask. And at least for me, the application of this was, was that I've got to make sure relationship trumps isolation and selfishness. Because it's very easy just for me to isolate myself or, you know, you know I've been all busy, week of all people, and so I'm just going to be by myself right now and, and do my selfish little thing. But, okay, that's fine at times, but relationship is more important. Loving God and loving people and it's challenging. I mean, what are those areas in your life today where, where you're really majoring in the minors? Where you're an expert in all these little things and, and maybe you find there's an area in your life where your head is just in the sand and, and you gonna get your head out and look at the bigger picture. I mean, woe to you, he says, Pharisees, for tithing out of your spice rack and neglecting mercy and justice and love. And we can all do that. And this is the good news, is that those hard things, God, God helps us with those things. And that's where our faith gets really exciting. You know, I meet a lot of bored Christians. I'm just kind of bored. And the reason you're bored is because you're not stepping on faith. It's probably because you're majoring in the minors. You get bored doing that. It gets boring counting seeds. Let's try that for a day, right? I had to stem raspberries for an hour last night. It was really boring, right? But I tell you, when you start challenging yourself, Say, so here's something that's more important in my life. It's hard, it's scary, but you begin to challenge yourself. All of a sudden, you need God. All of a sudden, you've got to step out in faith. All of a sudden, you've got to start praying more and reading your Bible more and worshiping more because you've got to do something, and you see God begin to work, and your Christian life gets more exciting. So I guess what we just leave with today is, what are those areas in your life that you're spending too much time in the minors? Are you living your life by the great commands of, of, of loving Jesus and loving people and seeing lives transform? I mean, that's the mission of our church. And so uh, have courage. Step out in faith, right? Stand. Let's stand as we close. I think sometimes we wait. I think it was Andy Stanley who said at one time that often we sit in the back and we wait to have courage before we do something, but courage is actually stepping out. When you're afraid, that's that's courage. And sometimes we need to do that. Uh, God, we thank you that you sent your son Jesus. We thank you that he died on the cross. That all of our sin has been washed away and cleansed. That we might be in relationship with you. That we might come boldly into your throne room and ask for grace and mercy in our time of need. And God, all of us are in need in different ways. And God, we pray that you might step into our lives in a deeper way, that you might fill us and touch us, God, with your grace and mercy. And God, we pray that you would help us think through our priorities this week. God, if there's areas where we're majoring in the minors, that God, you would help us to run from being that kind of Pharisee. God, you would help us, or at least help me, God, to allow relationship to trump isolation and selfishness. And God, that you would allow our relationship with you to trump other things. God, may you fill us with your power. May you minister to us. And we are just thrilled that we know you. And so God, we pray for you to bless us as we go. You would help us to love you, to love people, and to see lives transformed. In Jesus' name, amen.